shepherd to this whole region of the world here, they say, please don't go. Interestingly enough, this is the second time in this chapter that Paul actually is encouraged not to go to Jerusalem. Look at verse 4, if you would. We read, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. If you're reading this verse, maybe there's a question that arises in your mind, particularly after reading verse 4 and Paul going to Jerusalem. Was there something as you were reading this week that was a little bit puzzling to you? From verse 4 in particular. What's that, Tammy? Yeah, they were doing what? Yeah. Verse 4 makes it sound like that through the Spirit, I mean, I'll just read it, these people in, I believe, entire are telling Paul through the Spirit, do not go to Jerusalem. And then in verse 11, Agabus binds himself and says the person who goes to Jerusalem is going to be bound. And we may have a question in our minds then after reading of these two accounts, was Paul disobeying the Spirit by going to Jerusalem? We've seen Paul be sensitive to the Spirit of God prior to this when he's trying to preach the gospel and the Spirit says, nope, don't go to Bithynia, don't go to Asia, keep going here. And Paul says, okay, but maybe in Paul's haste to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost, is it possible that he is disobeying the leading of God and him being imprisoned is really punishment for that? I don't think so. Let's go back to chapter 19. And just see what the text tells us about this. Back in Acts 19, verse 21, we read, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. Notice, he resolved in the spirit And he lists these couple of cities, but one of those cities is Jerusalem. The Spirit is directing him there. Again in in chapter 20, we have a similar verse that we encounter. Chapter 20, this time verse 22. Paul says, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. This verse, again, is not unclear about the Spirit's role in directing Paul to Jerusalem. Paul says that he is constrained, bound, compelled by the Spirit of God to go to Jerusalem. And that leaves us with a question then, what is verse 4 of chapter 21? What is that trying to communicate to us? If we're just reading simply that through the Spirit, these followers of Jesus were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Is there a contradiction here? I don't think so. We don't really have the benefit of more than a sentence describing what's going on here entire, but I think we could look to what happens uh, with Agabus as kind of our example here. Notice again verse 11. Is it the Spirit of God that tells Paul not to go to Jerusalem? According to verse 11 of 21. 
Does the Holy Spirit ever say, Paul, I don't want you to go to Jerusalem? No, he doesn't. Who is it that tells Paul not to go? The people. Yes, so is it possible that what happened in verse 4 is the same thing that happens here, where there is perhaps a prophet who says, hey, Paul, this is what you're going to expect when you go to Jerusalem, and it is the people who respond and say, please, don't go. We, we love you too much, Paul. We do not want you to go if this means your imprisonment. I think that is the most likely solution here that would resolve the contradiction that we see between verses 4 and the rest of the scriptures that we've looked at. It's the one that makes the most sense. It's the one that doesn't contradict the Spirit of God. Uh, it would seem, although I wish we had more information here in verse 4, that what is happening is that the Spirit has revealed Paul will be imprisoned if he does go there, and it is the people who say, please, Paul, uh, stay back. We don't want you to go. Uh, these people are weeping, they're crying at the news that Paul will be imprisoned, but for what cause was Paul ready to be imprisoned and even die for? Lynn? For the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, I find it fascinating that Paul isn't going to go to Jerusalem and be persecuted because he's been hanging out with the Gentiles, because he's a Roman citizen, for whatever reason. Paul is willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I encouraged you to reflect on this and comment on Paul's willingness to go to a place where he will be met with hostility. What were some of the things that came to mind as he reflected on Paul's passion for Jesus here? Copy. Certainly, yeah. Being willing to do the hard things for the Lord. Any other thoughts? Just reflecting on Paul saying, you know what? If I die in Jerusalem, that's okay. Yeah, Lisa. Totally. Tammy. Yeah, Jeff. Uh, most of us won't be faced with some of this um, persecution, and yet Paul was willing to endure through that. What, what smaller persecutions we face, or rejection of humanity that aren't severe, that we not willing to do for the name of the Lord Totally, yeah. Uh, Barb. Amen. Yeah, I just thought of some missionaries who encountered similar experiences to the Apostle Paul, 
when they announced their destination where they were going, they were met with some pushback by people. Um, I've mentioned already that I'm reading Hudson Taylor's biography. Uh, he was one such missionary. Uh, he went to China in the mid-1800s when it was largely closed off to foreigners, and on occasion he would come back to England and kind of give updates as to what was happening in China. And it wasn't unusual uh, for people to say to him, what are you doing halfway around the world? Uh, God, they, they would say things like, you're going to be forgotten about, um, your needs are not going to be met. You might find yourself lacking basic necessities in life. This was partly because Hudson Taylor never asked for funds. And so because he was never asking for it, these people are s- said, you're going to be forgotten about. Y- you are halfway around the world. How are your needs going to be met? And his reply was that, to give an analogy or an example, he said, I have children of my own. And it's not hard for me to remember that they need breakfast and lunch and dinner. Do you not think that God can remember that I have needs as well as his child? His faith was pretty astonishing there. I thought of one other missionary. I've mentioned him before as well. His name was uh, John Patton. He went to a little chunk of islands called the New Hebrides Islands. And famously, an older man in his church came up to him and said, hey, uh, maybe before or after his missionary presentation in Scotland, he said, John, you're going to be eaten by cannibals if you go to these islands in the New Hebrides. And uh, John's kind of famous reply was, hey, Mr. So-and-so, you're getting up there in years yourself, and your body will soon be eaten by worms. Um, Whether or not I'm eaten by cannibals doesn't really matter to me, because on the resurrection day, he says, my body will rise as fair as yours. I'm challenged by these missionaries by the Apostle Paul and their commitment to serving Jesus, even at great cost to themselves. The threat of death or imprisonment does not keep Paul from going to Jerusalem and perhaps even dying for the name of Jesus Christ. And as I was just reflecting on this, it was woefully obvious how short I've fallen of this same mindset. And I kind of asked myself, like, how do you get there? How do you get to a place where you're willing to echo those words of Paul and say, yeah, I'll die for Christ? A couple of things came to mind. I think, one, you have to truly love Jesus. I think I'm guilty of having a a very, like, head knowledge of Christ. Uh, I can rattle off orthodox positions on his deity or his humanity and give you a lot of facts about his death and resurrection and why those things are important. But do you love Jesus? Do you remember what he's done for you? That you deserved God's wrath and that he bore it instead of you. Do you love the words of Jesus? Have they proven themselves to be a comfort to your soul? Although you have not seen Jesus, do you know him? Do you love him? Are you willing to serve him with the entirety 
of your being? Secondly, are you convinced that lost people cannot be reconciled to God by any other means except Jesus Christ? Again, this is where like the reality of like doctrine and stuff just comes, you know, where the rubber meets the road with like real life. We know that no one is saved apart from Christ, but are we urgent in telling people about that? Or are we content to let days and weeks and months and years go by without ever pleading with unsaved people? Come to Jesus. This is the only way. That's what motivated these missionaries. Hudson Taylor lost children his wife in China. He was paralyzed at one point, not knowing if he would ever walk again. And the thing that kept him going, even dictating letters when he couldn't move his body, was that there were millions of lost people in China who needed Jesus. And I just think we have to be reminded of that. This really is an example to all of us to be willing to give up, like Jeff was saying, We might not face death or severe persecution like Paul, but certainly lesser things in life we stand to lose. Are we willing to give those up for the name of Jesus Christ? I hope so. Later on in chapter 21, Paul returns to Jerusalem, and there he's met by the elders in the church, and they are thrilled to hear the work that Paul is doing around the world. However, pretty quickly, they reveal a problem to the Apostle Paul. They say, Paul, there are a lot of believers here in Jerusalem who have heard rumors about you, that you are going around to the known world and telling Jews that they don't need to follow the law anymore. You're telling these people, supposedly, that they don't need to be circumcised, that they don't need to follow what Moses has given us, that this is just unimportant. And they say, so in an effort to maybe communicate that this isn't what you haven't been, this isn't what you have been teaching while you're abroad, would you be willing to take these four guys who are finishing a vow, likely a Nazarite vow, would you be willing to take them to the temple and kind of sponsor them, pay for their sacrifices, be very present and visible so that Jewish Christians know okay, everything I've heard about Paul cannot be true because here he is in the temple following some of the Mosaic law. Would you be willing to do that, Paul? And Paul actually goes through with it. Now this, Paul uh, conforming to the law here or parts of it has really puzzled some people, particularly given his response to the law prior to this. Or if you look at Galatians and how adamant he is uh, that people would require circumcision for salvation, Galatians is like, no way. Paul is against that. But what is the fundamental difference between the issue that Paul is presented with in verses 20 and 24 here in Acts 21 and the issue that he encountered back in Acts 15? Does anyone know like, what the, the fundamental difference is that helps us discern how Paul could not follow the law in one instance, but in another, follow the law? I realize this was a confusing question, but Bonnie, yeah. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. 
Nailed it. Yes, in Acts 15, verse 1, there are people who are coming to Gentiles and saying, you must follow the Jewish law if you want to be saved. They're adding works to the gospel. Paul is adamantly opposed to a works-based salvation. No way. We are not going to require Gentiles to be circumcised so that they can be saved. However, here in Acts 21, as Bonnie graciously pointed out, this is not a matter of salvation in this chapter. These are Jewish Christians who are still trying to navigate what parts of the law they need to keep, what they don't. We've already seen Peter have an issue with this. Jesus tells Peter, hey, you can eat whatever you want. And Peter says, no way. So there are still Jews who are following parts of the law, not for salvation reasons, but just, it's like Bonnie said, a conscience issue. And Paul realizes this, and he realizes that there might be some discord or disagreement between the Jews and himself. And he says, you know what? Okay. I will submit to these policies for the sake of unity. And so how does Romans 14 verses 13 to 19 instruct how we should treat other believers whose conscience is different than ours? How should we live when we have a disagreement like this? Claire. Yeah, I think you said that pretty well. Maybe one of the key words there being not to judge. That is one of the key points that Romans brings up is that when someone has a different conscience conviction than you do, don't judge them. Uh, Any other thoughts on how we should interact with believers whose conscience is different than ours? John. Exactly. Yeah, deference is the key point here, and it's not flexing our freedoms, if you will, so that we can do whatever we want and know we can for good conscience. Paul will say uh, later on in the epistles, like to the Jews, I become as a Jew, as one under the law. To the Gentiles, I don't observe parts of the law. He doesn't, he, he is willing for the sake of unity to defer to people who feel differently about certain things than he do. And I think that that really is the point uh, what Paul's doing here, and it's an example to us as well, that when we disagree with other believers, be it in regards to any number of things, uh, dress, music, uh, whatever, Christians disagree about all sorts of things, that the goal in coming to a resolution is not to be right, but to pursue unity. And even if that means laying aside some of your freedoms and things that you know you can do uh, for the sake of peace between believers. All right, then we come to Acts 22. And Paul comes to the temple in Acts 22. He's not been in Jerusalem long. We know that he's really only there for a total of 12 days. But while he's in the temple, some Jews from Asia see Paul. And these are the same guys that stoned him back in Lystra, Iconia, Antioch, and Pisidia. They hate Paul. So when they see him in the temple, 
They stir up a crowd against him. They say, this is the guy who's teaching all these false things, you know, around the world. They accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. And this huge crowd is just stirred up in opposition against Paul uh, to the point where they're about ready to kill him. Uh, Unless the Romans had intervened here in the temple, Paul may have been put to death. And he actually is given a chance to speak to this crowd in Acts 22. And he just makes use of a really interesting tactic. He begins talking about the common ground that they have with one another. And what are some of the things that Paul does to kind of, in a way, unify himself with this crowd? He points out some of the things that they might share in common. Hutch. Yeah, yeah. Paul, Paul mentions all of those things. He says, I'm a Jew. I was educated at the Fidic Familial. I used to persecute the church just like you guys are doing now. We have a lot in common. It's fascinating. And he uses kind of their commonalities to use that as a springboard to talk about the gospel. He actually briefly mentions uh, gospel themes in verse 16, and he would have continued had the people not interrupted him and silenced him. But I, maybe the more applicational question is, how can Paul's approach here in dealing with enemies of the gospel be instructive to us as we encounter people who are hostile towards Christ? How can we apply what we see Paul do here in this text? Bonnie. Totally. Yes, that's exactly what I was hoping you guys would answer, that we can communicate to other people that we are not better than you, that our lives are not easy and without difficulty, that we somehow have superior knowledge that because we know the truth and you don't. We never sin or struggle with anything. We just sit on our high horse and look down our nose at you. No one wants to talk to anyone like that. If that's how Christians come across to people, No wonder we can't have, you know, friends with unsaved people. But if when we share the gospel, we take care to say, listen, I'm a sinner too. The the very things that you're having a hard time understanding, I once had a hard time understanding myself. But apart from the grace of God in my life, I'd be right where you were. The joy and peace and love that I now have today cannot be explained apart from something supernatural that has happened to me. From Paul's example, I think that we can learn to build some common ground with people as we share the gospel, not just to say, you're a sinner. Get with the program. Say, hey, I was there too. Yeah, thank you, Bonnie. Great answer. Um, Second part of this question from Acts 22 is that Paul recounts parts of his testimony in Philippians 3 and 1 Timothy 1. In these passages, how does Paul view the achievements of his life prior to knowing Christ? He tells us his testimony here in Acts 22. He tells us in these other passages of scripture. How does, how does Paul view his life prior to conversion, maybe using the wording of these texts? Lynn. Yeah, 
He counts it as rubbish. I think that's specifically from Philippians 3. Paul lists his heritage, all of these accomplishments. On paper, Paul is the most faithful Jew who's ever lived. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee. I was a zealous defender of Judaism. I was blameless in regards to keeping the law. But when it comes to knowing Christ, all of those things that seem awesome on paper, I'll count as garbage, as rubbish, as lost. Totally. Anyone have comments from 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, how Paul described himself there? Yeah, Paul is the foremost of sinners and an example that God is patient. Yeah, great answer. And so what consumes Paul's life after his conversion? If he regards all of these things as rubbish, what is his sole focus from conversion forward? Yeah, like he says in Philippians, for me to live, it's Christ. And to die, his only gain. And again, we just have this example in the Apostle Paul that one thing consumes his life. Certainly, he still has to work. We know he's a tent maker. He works with his hands. He provides for himself. But even in his work, even in his everyday life, Jesus Christ consumes him. And I think we have a great example or model for us today as we reflect on our own lives and just ask, does Jesus consume me like this? Is his word dwelling richly in me? Is every decision that I make with honoring Jesus at the forefront of my mind? Paul's example to us in these chapters is astonishing. Acts 23, Paul gets a chance to actually defend himself. He's been arrested. This crowd that you know was trying to kill him, he was saved by the Romans, but he's still in custody here. And he gets a chance to stand before a Jewish council and make a defense for himself. And he discerns that there are two groups of people present in the council. What two groups of people were there that he was standing before? The Sadducees and the Pharisees. Yes, and who does Paul side himself with? The Pharisees. And what issue is the point of contention between these two groups? The resurrection, yes. Maybe you didn't know this, but the Sadducees are opposed to the resurrection. Actually, back in the Gospels, a group of Sadducees come to Jesus and they put forward this hypothetical example. They say, in the resurrection, wink, wink, because they don't believe in one, let's say that this woman had seven husbands. Whose husband is she going to be in the resurrection? To which Jesus replies, well, you guys are wrong on two fronts. Because you don't know the scriptures. In the resurrection of the dead, there is neither marriage nor giving in marriage. So your question doesn't really apply here. But do you remember back in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the the Old Testament, uh, God actually said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice that God didn't say I was the God of these guys who are now dead, but I am. Illustrating even in the book of Exodus that these guys who are dead, are still alive. There is a resurrection. And so Paul is aware of this. He discerns the Pharisees and the Sadducees are present, and he pits the Pharisees and Sadducees against each other by mentioning the resurrection. Now, as Acts develops, 
we realize that the resurrection Paul is talking about is the resurrection of Jesus. Really, both groups would be against this idea. But Paul is not lying here and saying that he was on trial for the resurrection of the dead. He certainly is. He's been promoting the resurrection of one person, Jesus Christ, who they have been rejecting and are seeking to kill him for talking about. Although the Pharisees and Sadducees are kind of pitted against each other here, and the Pharisees actually end up concluding, we find nothing wrong with this man. Paul isn't set free. He's still imprisoned. And the very next night, someone appears to Paul as he is incarcerated. Who is it that appears to Paul in verse 11? Yeah, maybe more specifically? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus actually appears to Paul maybe more than we're used to in the book of Acts or more than we would expect. Particularly if you have a red-letter Bible, you'll notice that Jesus is speaking not infrequently. This is the third time that he's appeared to the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. First, when he was on the road to Damascus. Second, when Paul was in Corinth. And Paul is probably wondering, do I need to flee Corinth too? And Jesus appears to him and says, be encouraged. There are many in this city that are mine. What purpose was Jesus here for in Acts 23? What is Jesus there to do? To encourage him. He says this in verse 11. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And I asked you to comment on how awesome this must have been in light of Paul's present circumstances. What are some of the things that come to mind as you think about Jesus himself appearing to Paul in prison and encouraging him? What do you think of? Bunny. Totally. Yeah. Paul isn't out of the woods yet. He's got two years in prison before he even makes his way to Rome. On his way to Rome, he's going to be shipwrecked. How often do you think this night came back to his mind? And Jesus himself encouraged him and said, Paul, you're going to testify in Rome too. You know, we think about Paul's experience here and... Maybe we're a little jealous and we think to ourselves, man, a lot of the anxieties of my life would go away if Jesus just appeared to me too and said, I'm with you. Right? Paul's so lucky. And yet in thinking that we forget that there are promises that are available to us as well that Jesus has made to us. And I just asked you, to write one down that you could meditate or reflect on. Would anyone be willing to share some of the promises that they wrote down and just thought about on, uh, what was this, Wednesday? Yeah, Claire. Totally. That was the first one written down that I had on my notes. How awesome is it that no matter what we go through, it's not evidence that Jesus has left us. He's not going to forsake us or leave us. The promise that he made to Paul is written to us in Hebrews. Totally. Any other promises that were an encouragement to you this week? 
Sammy. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, what an encouragement. Uh, my mind was even thinking about um, Jesus saying in the Gospels, you know, fear not. I've overcome the world. Totally. Yeah, any other promises? Copy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else? Yeah. Yeah, I had Psalm 23 written down as well. Yeah, John. I can't think of another approach. I didn't write down specific verses because there are so many promises. I figured how many thousands of promises there are. Mm-hmm. My approach was he promised me eternal life so that I could walk with him in this life. I could have his peace. I can have his presence here. The Holy Spirit is continually with me. And the accomplishment of his perfect will in my life. Those are all promises in God's word. Totally. Yeah, the, the intent of this exercise here, uh, what I've written down, is, is that we think sometimes that God just made promises to the Abrahams and Davids and Pauls of the world, these people that had like a unique opportunity to interact with him and God personally intervened in their life and encouraged them. But let's not forget that we have the promises of God here for us as well. And if we find ourselves thinking, yeah, all my anxieties and problems would go away if Jesus just did for me what he did for Paul here, don't forget, we have promises here for us that are intended to help us trust and rely on him. Quickly, moving to Acts 24, uh, Paul is still in prison. He kind of gets passed around from ruler to ruler. He ends up over in Caesarea, uh, away from Jerusalem, and he gets a chance to talk to the governor named Felix. And verses 24 to 25, what topics did Paul speak about with Felix? The text mentions, yeah, Barb. Faith in Jesus generally, then there were some, some specific topics that he got to mention as well. Let me see if I can find those really quick. Yeah, righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Now, Luke doesn't totally key us into this in Acts, but we know from history, uh, Felix's wife, Drusilla, is mentioned. And it turns out that Felix actually basically stole her from another man. So this was like somewhat of an adulterous relationship. Definitely not somewhat, it was. And so these uh, topics of righteousness, self-control, and judgment are personal. How does Felix respond to hearing these topics from Paul? He's alarmed. Yeah. He's like, oh, oh uh, how about you go back to prison and I'll call you in a couple of days. What do you think's happening here? Conviction of sin. How might these topics be cause for alarm for someone. Why is this alarming? Okay. Your sin will find you out, totally. Yeah, I'm just thinking, as, as you talk to people about righteousness, it's going to be apparent to them pretty quickly, I'm not righteous. And to know that your unrighteousness is deserving of judgment is like, 
Yikes. How does this model the way that we should share the gospel with others? What example do we have here from Paul in how we personally share the gospel? Yeah, John. Totally. Yes. I hope our study through Romans has illustrated this. We're two chapters into the book and we're still talking about God's wrath remaining on people and the reasons why. The good news of the gospel begins with the bad news that you are unrighteous. You do not need a savior if you have nothing to be saved from. And like John said, we cannot pull punches and telling people the truth. I've just been reflecting on this a little bit this week. We are not opposed to the LGBTQ lifestyle because we hate people. We're opposed to it because we know from Romans that this is what condemns people. And if we are affirming of this, we are letting people walk into hell and say, okay, it's fine. And so standing against this is not because we hate people, it's because we love them enough to tell them, this sin has condemned you. Come to Jesus, please. Just like any other sin would. We are opposed to all sins. For no other reason, we're not trying to be mean or unkind, it's loving to tell people, you are unrighteous, and then use that to introduce them to Jesus and tell them of his love for sinners. I know we're out of time. We'll not answer the last question. Let's just pray. Lord, we're grateful again just to see how these words from thousands of years ago have application to present-day life. Uh, Lord, help us to be bold in proclaiming the gospel as we see Paul do. Help us to follow this example of giving Jesus our everything and living solely for him. As we reflect on Hebrews 13, this laying aside of every weight and sin which so easily besets us. Lord, help us as we run the race to lay aside even weights, things that would just be unhelpful, and to follow Jesus Christ alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.